I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to our heated annual debate of garden books, ancient and modern. A momentary respite from political discussion, but no less passionate. Today we're talking about books to treasure, books to give us gifts, and books to refer to time and time again. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist here at the RHS. Today I'm joined by three book and plant-loving colleagues in our podcast studio in the heart of London's Shoreditch Media Hub. Hello, I'm Fiona Davison and I'm the Head of Libraries and Exhibitions based at Vincent Square. Hello, I'm James Armitage. I'm the editor of The Plant Review and I'm based in Peterborough. Hello, I'm Chris Young, the editor of The Garden magazine and I oversee all of the publishing we do across all of our different platforms. Hello all. Okay, to start off, let's talk about the year in books. Which garden-related tomes have caught your imagination this year? What have you read? What do you think? Fiona, your office is literally surrounded with books, so let's start with you. Yeah, the good thing about being based in a library is you don't have to restrict yourself to the new books that are on sale, so I get to kind of roam free across books dating back to whenever. So the books that I've bought in... One is Just Vegetating by Joy Larkham, and it was published in 2012, and it's a lovely book. It's subtitled a memoir, but it's not a conventional memoir. Don't go expecting to hear Joy's life story. It's a series of articles that she's written over the years, and for those who don't know Joy Larkham and how um, important she is, she's a person who I think you can say kind of really popularised a lot of vegetables and particularly salad crops, and she travelled the world seeking out new seeds and new plants and new ways of growing, kind of looking at traditional crops around the world and and just vegetating. I think my favourite part of it is she took a trip around Europe, 1976 to 77, with her young family. And I just love her approach to childcare. She left her husband to look after the kids and the cooking. And then she just went visiting market gardens and nurseries all over Europe. Um, and they just get bundled up and just went into a camper van and roamed yeah. across Europe. She amazing. gave the dog away and <laughs> and her piano and jumped into the camper van and, and off she went. And she had some, you know, good French, but she learnt across, she went behind the Iron Curtain, they went to Portugal, they went to Spain. She learnt two phrases, which she said carried her most places. One is, um, do you save seeds? And then the second one is kind of have a bath, please, which I think tells you about the nature of the trip. Uh, But it's a lovely book. It's a lovely book to dip in and out of. 
Um, you get a lot of her knowledge come shining through and a lot of the sights and sounds that she saw when she was travelling. And it's a great book if you're all into growing vegetables. James, what have you been reading? Well, I've read a couple of books, um, one quite typically planty and the other not. The typically planty one is Arboretum by Owen Johnson. He's the, the tree recorder for the British Isles, so he goes out and measures all the champion trees and, and so on. He's an amazing man because he doesn't drive, but he's made it to one end of the United Kingdom to the other. And this book is really a celebration of all the trees he's found on his travels. And it's written in quite a restrained, matter-of-fact way. But there are beautiful touches of imagination in the way he describes trees. And I, I do feel in some ways horticultural journalism has become a bit bland in places. But trees is one of the places where people still talk with a kind of verve and excitement and romance about their, their subject. And, and Owen Johnson is a wonderful writer. In fact, he's written for the Plant Review, the magazine. I edit a series of articles and they're all superbly weighted and charmingly phrased. And this really comes through in, in this book. It's split into native trees and then exotic trees. And you would think that it was quite difficult to, you know, it would just end up being, and then I saw this tree and it measured so much, and then I saw this tree and then I saw... But actually, he manages to bring something individual to each one. And you really get a sense of the drive that makes somebody get up on a freezing cold morning and off on his bicycle with his bicycle clips and uh, <laughs> and, and go around, around these places just admiring trees. It's a book I can't recommend highly enough. I think perhaps its title doesn't do it a lot of favours. sounds a bit technical, but it's such a book that can be read by anyone and fills you with a sense of joy and adventure, the remarkable things we can find growing in our country. The other book I've read and enjoyed very much is Mythos by Stephen Fry. I read it when I was in China for a couple of weeks, and it's a fantastic book to read when you're in a sort of a new place, an exotic place and a hot place because you're sort of receptive to the ideas of humanity all being different but the eternal similarities of human beings. But the thing is full of plants. Now, I knew quite a lot of these stories having been around botany and plants for so many years so probably everybody knows about Narcissus and Hyacinthus and all these sorts of things. But there's just a huge number of plant names, Crocus and so on, which owe their origins to the Greek myths. But it's more than that. There's just mention all over the place of sacred oaks and linden trees and laurels and olives and trees and plants are, are throughout the book. And you really get a sense of a, a society, a civilization that was in touch far more with its landscape than we are today. People knew about plants as a part of their lives. I think perhaps it's something we've lost a little as a society these days. And we could learn a lot about not just human nature, but about love of nature from the Greeks. Thank you, James. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I've had a couple of books this year that have um, really taken to. Uh, the first is a novel, and I don't know about you, but um, every night I have to read and I can't go to sleep uh, without reading. If any of you have ever spoken to Mrs. Young, my much better half, she always says I'm rather late to fashions and trends, and uh, so it is with one of my novels. Guy, I know you're looking surprised at that. I can't believe that. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Um, one of them is a novel by Sarah Waters, um, who many people will know through The Paying Guests or The Little Stranger. And I read her book called Fingersmith, which actually came out in 2002. But it's an incredibly emotive, dark, pretty dismal tale of 1860s London with petty thieves and thieving and stealing and all, all of that sort of going on. But it's a fact for me that the landscape in the garden of this very large mansion house in Buckinghamshire is just so constant and so dismal that um, it was only on reflecting about the book that you think, gosh, this is omnipresent. There's a bit where um, one of the uh, 
key actors in it are looking out of this house and it's dark and cold and they say there was not much to stay for here in the house. In the park there was an avenue of trees that led up to the house. There was a bare bit of gravel that the house was set in. There was a place they called a herb garden that grew mostly nettles and an overgrown wood with blocked off paths. At the edge of the wood was a little stone windowless building. Maud had said was an ice house. And it's just this constant evocation of grandeur which isn't very grand and pretty miserable and also reflecting the um, fortunes of the main protagonists. So it's a great book, um, nothing to do with gardening, but it's nice that landscape and garden sits behind the story. The other book, which I know I share with one of my colleagues across the table, is Penelope Lively's Life in the Garden. Now, this came out in 2017 and is a book where, if you want your mind to be opened to gardens, is perfect for you. She writes beautifully. She's incredibly personal and honest. She weaves in plenty of her experience and as a keen and passionate gardener and plants person. Uh, but she really is challenging us with why we have associations with gardens, why we undertake gardening, what they do for us, what do they mean for us. She's constantly referencing different stories about plants or different books, history, literature, show gardens to gardeners. And I think, I don't know about you, Fiona, but there's not that many books like this that actually look at the subject of gardens, give a story to them and try and reflect or try and provoke us to why we think about them. What did you think of it? Yeah, I really like it. I think that it made me think about how I've reacted to books and how I've reacted to garden plants and the connection with them because I kind of I've never this is a big confession to someone who spends a lot of time at Wisley I've never liked rhododendrons <gasps> I think they're horrid <laughs> lovely knowing yeah, you shun, yeah. shun her <laughs> I know isn't that dreadful and I think having read this book it reminded me I read Du Maurier's Rebecca at an impressionable age and that is full of really hideous references to rhododendrons and about their murderous and red and how they're really sinister in the book and I blame that book <laughs> and so that yeah I'm, but I'm Penelope really turned you around did she no she reminded me she, she does she kind of points out how effective de Maurier is about how she gives a personality to the garden and it's an ominous and it's a, a nasty one and and how Rebecca the first wife who's you know the looming presence in the book is associated with dark exotic scent heavy nasty rhododendrons <laughs> so yeah i think you can pick those things up almost subliminally when you're reading but it was before when i was trying to think of a book of literature that had a garden in it i really struggled yeah, there aren't many where there were, where there's a big personality where it's not just a setting or a metaphor mm. or you know where it's really central and it was tough but Penelope Lively kind of reminds you of some points really nicely. And what I liked about her is that she it feels like she's sitting next to you here you know she just chats. I have to say when I read it I could only read small bits of it. Yeah it's I, a dip in dip it's a, out it book. Is. And it's at the end of a hard day in the RHS offices you don't always want to rush home and read it but actually when you're a little bit freer it does actually and you sit down and read it for 20 minutes it's a lovely read. Mm, and, and it, it points you back to the original book she's talking about you know that's what I like about it. So I'm not quite clear here are you saying that you read this at bedtime because it sends you to sleep <laughs> not at all mm. no i'm saying i sometimes have to be in the mood to read it because it gets you thinking so much i don't want to be overstimulated at night oh. <laughs> i know the feeling <laughs> now my book i'm rereading the woodlanders by thomas hardy and I, I like the woodlanders because although it's not actually about gardens it's about a countryside in the uh, dorset somerset borders which i know very well and the whole place is a bit like a garden it captures the dripping wet countryside full of our orchards and forests and uh, coppiced woods and 
It's set about 100 years ago, and uh, nowadays, of course, that area is commuter land for Bristol and Yeovil. But um, in those days, it was remote. People lived very close to nature. And one of the central protagonists you know, feels that when the tree next to his cottage is felled, he'll die too. And, of course, Thomas Hardy, being Thomas Hardy and full of gloom, um, exactly what happens. <laughs> so there's nothing quite like Thomas Hardy, I feel, for we people from the West. It takes you home. You can find details of the books discussed in today's podcast at rhs.org.uk forward slash books podcast. Next year also promises to be a rich year for book-loving gardeners, with some widely anticipated titles hitting shop shelves. The RHS publishing team shares an office with our magazine teams in Peterborough. Earlier this week, we spoke to Ray Spencer-Jones, who leads the publishing team, about some of the book titles the RHS has commissioned for 2020. So I'm going to kick off my review of RHS books with an impressively hefty tome, The Encyclopedia of Plants and Flowers. The first edition was published in 1989, so for its 30th birthday in 2019, it has been given a makeover with a newer and fresher look. And regardless of the onslaught of the internet, it remains a stalwart of gardening books. There's no need to rely on the Wi-Fi to be able to select any number of plant choices from the 8,000 plant selections. You can take this book into your shed and everything is there for you at a glance. So from a hefty tome to a much more compact title that follows hot on the heels of its sister titles, How Do Worms Work and Can Anything Stop Slugs? This lovely book, How Can I Help Hedgehogs, has been written by RHS senior horticulturist Helen Bostock and co-author Sophie Collins. And the duo share more than 100 ideas for how to encourage wildlife into your garden. Many of these ideas are very simple and they're low cost, but they could make a, a significant difference to the diversity of the wildlife in your garden. But it's not all how-to ideas. The I Never Knew That mini features make the book informative and entertaining. So this is a great little Christmas stocking filler. For another one, for your stocking, we've got RHS Gardener's Quiz and Puzzle Book. This is something completely different. The RHS has never published a puzzle book like this before. And it is a collaboration between puzzler expert Dr Gareth Moore and horticulturist Simon Aykroyd. The pair have devised a hundred brain teasers designed to entertain and inform, but gardening geeks will be put through their paces on every kind of gardening topic, including botany, vegetables, houseplants, pest and disease problems, and much, much more. As I said before, this is a great Christmas gift, particularly for the gardener who has absolutely everything. And now we've got a couple of children's books in the run-up to Christmas, if you're digging around for ideas for your children. RHS Under Your Feet... We're going to go underground, and I absolutely love this book. It's a fabulously illustrated book for children aged seven to nine that charts the subterranean world of diverse environments from European forests to African deserts and even the moon. Brought so brilliantly to life by the distinctive illustrations, children and probably their adults can't fail to be fascinated by the insects, animals and microbes that inhabit the world under our feet. While teachers will be pleased to know that this book includes core key stage one national curriculum topics. Look out for this in the spring next year. And I'm going to finish with another book for children, this time for eight to 12 year olds. But I can guarantee that anyone with the least interest in plants will be fascinated by this book. 
Spectacular Plants is the brainchild of naturalist, author and filmmaker Stuart McPherson. Stuart exudes enthusiasm and his book is an energetic overview of weird and wonderful plants that he has observed on his travels all over the world. There are stinky starfish flowers, a begonia that looks like Darth Vader, white strawberries and purple potatoes. 400 photographs and illustrations accompany the descriptions of the plants and their natural habitats. And on top of that, Stuart shows you how to grow them. Children, parents, teachers and anyone interested in the natural world will love this book. In fact, anyone who reads it is bound to come away with no end of impressive planty anecdotes to share at the dinner table. So that's my roundup of the best of the RHS books this year. Thank you, Ray. You're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast Annual Book Special. As we approach the Christmas season, it seems an appropriate time to talk more about children. Despite the media focus on children and mobiles, online games and screen time, there is still a massive appetite for books in younger age groups. Authors and publishers are keen to fuel the growing interest of children, parents and schools in gardening with a range of titles designed to capture children's imagination and encourage them to grow. So, Fiona, tell me more about children's literature in the RHS. Well, it's something I've been thinking quite a lot about because I'm getting ready for a new library at Wisley, which is going to open soon. And one of the things we're looking at is what books can we showcase at Wisley? And one of the things I want to look at is developing our collection on children's gardening literature because I think it's a really rich and fascinating subject. And we've already got some really lovely things to start us off. The RHS has been collecting children's gardening books because from the 1890s it ran exams for teachers to encourage school gardening. So it predates, you know, the focus on the modern campaign for school gardening. This Mm. is a long-standing thing. So we've got lots of lovely textbooks and they are really ambitious in what they want the teachers, even at primary level, to teach the children in terms of horticultural techniques. There's certainly a lot of woodwork. The children were expected to build their own cold frames and glass houses and worksheds and things. The boys, the boys, not the girls. The girls were put inside for housework in the sheds and could grow the odd flower if they were lucky. It's quite a strong gender divide. And so those books are very much aimed at teachers. But we've also got books aimed at children and they seem to fall into two camps. The kind of slightly fair, twee, let's pick pansies and think of fairies, gardening books, which Gertrude Jekyll perfected and other garden authors and then the more plants are really exciting (laughs) type Mm -hmm. books which try to bring plants alive and there are lots of tales of daring do across the empire of plant collectors and amazing plant life across the world you know great vines and amazing trees and things and then got some lovely books i've one one here which is uh where does your garden grow which is a lovely maps of the world with the plants from your garden mapped out And sometimes these children's books, they're really good at displaying through illustration quite complex things. And this is one of the best books I've seen for explaining the worldwide source of plants across in your domestic garden. But it's aimed at seven, eight, nine-year-olds. When you're looking through all the books, Fiona, is it written in that sort of Victorian language? Is it Because I know when we've talked before about children's publishing, it's adults talking to children, but in adult language. Or is it just because it's Victorian or Edwardian language that we find it quite tricky? Yeah, I think it is to do with the time that they're writing and their expectations of what children 
would understand. I mean, one of the ones here I've got at the top of the pile, uh, which is titled, it's by Charles H. Wyatt, and it's titled Gardening for Children and Others. <laughs> and I, I suspect the others are, are women and servants. Um, but it's quite, it's very grand and top down, and it's very, very dense. They're not giving much slack no. for the children, whereas modern children's gardening books, I think, sometimes err too far the other way. Normally and too they're simple. too simple mm. and don't give children credit to being interested in the processes and the kind of science behind the plants sometimes. So, James, what children's books have come to your attention? Well, reading to my own children, not that much really in, in terms of plants. Spot the Dog, Maisie Mouse, they both seem fairly keen gardeners and potential RHS members. But beyond, <laughs> beyond that, there's, there's not that, that much really. But for my own childhood... I remember quite clearly The Children of Green Know, which is about this little boy, Tolly, who goes to stay with his great-grandmother in this great rambling house and finds there the ghosts of the children who used to, to live in the house. And they all turn out to be quite friendly, so that's good. But there is one ominous presence, and it's Green Noah the Demon Tree. Mm. Green Noah Demon Tree, evil fingers can't catch me. And oh, Green Noah is terrifying. And, uh, <laughs> and it stuck with me for a long time and I suppose probably didn't do me a lot of good in terms of getting into plants. Except, we were wondering. Yeah. <laughs> except, except that I suppose it made an impression on me that these were sort of dramatic objects, you know, the symbolic creations. But if you think about it, plants don't come out of children's literature terribly well often. You know, there's always dark woods and poisonous apples. And they're, yeah, they're just sort think of Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah, it's a good so, name for that for the giant. So they're, they're often these evil things as opposed to, to animals which are fluffy and noble and, <laughs> and brave and wholesome unless you're a wolf of course and wolves don't come out of these things very well. I wonder is that to do with protection that folklore's got a lot of warnings about plants because you don't want your children yeah, going and ingesting and things. Eating a digitalis, yeah. no quite. But that's really stayed with me and the other one that stayed with me is the Magic Faraway Tree books by um, Enid Blyton. I remember those. Yeah, no, they're, they're tell, good. Tell the listeners about those because they were rather splendid. They were rather splendid. So the Faraway Tree was this fantastical tree which lived in the enchanted forest and it, in a way it had a sort of early quite basic ecological message so the faraway tree was sometimes under threat from the activity that might damage its roots and things like that and different parts of the faraway tree had acorns on or fruits and things like that so actually it did teach children a bit about plants and it was populated with all sorts of other fantastical characters and so they were really rather jolly, but those are the things which stay with me from my boyhood. Yeah, I remember the faraway tree. I understand that Enid Blyton is somewhat frowned upon now. Chris, were you an Enid Blyton fan? Oh, I was. Absolutely addicted to her. Um, so I was talking to my 13-year-old daughter and 15-year-old son about this, uh, because when you're oversee publishing and things, you work for the RHS, you want your kids to be as enthusiastic and as keen as you are about gardens and plants, and obviously my children aren't, but they do like being outside. And when I was talking to them about this, Enid Blyton's The Secret Seven Adventure came straight out of their mouths, because obviously that whole concept of the story of The Secret Seven is hugely exciting, and it all starts in a shed. So sheds are good, and uh, I like the fact that a shed starts all their stories and all their journeys. The Secret Seven was uh, really important, especially to my son, but he absolutely loved it. And I, But I remember as a boy going around my village pretending I was going to stop all the crime and sort everybody out and get rid of the baddies. Really seminal to me. 
The other article that really isn't about gardens, but it's much more about being outside and landscape and nature is The Wolf Wilder. And my daughter, who is a pretty voracious reader, read this. And this is all about the snowbound woods. We're talking about woods being bad and scary, but the snowbound woods of Russia. And there's this girl with her mother and they're fighting everything from men to the army to the weather to uh, people being against them. But it's the most brilliantly written, imaginative and descriptive piece of work. And there's a lot of feminism in there, which is great. Um, and it's about this um, little girl kind of uprising and, and saying no to the evils of man and the challenge of nature. But throughout it is the woodlands, throughout it is the snow, throughout it is wolves. And a wolf wilder guy, I'm sure you know, is not an animal tamer. A wolf wilder is trying to get tamed animals to fend for themselves. Oh, you learn something every day. So, And there's this lovely story about this, but it's all based in, in this dramatic and tough landscape the wolf wilder succeeds and she grows and develops so it's a brilliant story really worth reading and a great one for to reminding your children about why being in the landscape and with being uh, in respect of nature is just so important thank you chris i must say as a child my favorite books always featured spitfires however i was also like collecting facts and my headmaster used to say that i was unusually well informed well searching through the rhs library i found a book called 1000 facts on plants um, which i must say is an excellent book and i've gone through it and i found some facts that are wrong which always cheers me up and a lot of facts that um i didn't know before so for a child like me who um rather remorselessly pragmatic um, a thousand facts on plants would fit the bill very nicely plenty of ideas there to share with those in your household with smaller green fingers and finally gifts as the christmas advertising juggernaut revs up a notch panic not there's still plenty of time to reduce your plastic footprint by buying and wrapping in brown paper some wonderful books for friends and family. To make this easier, we've all selected a couple of titles that we think will satisfy both practical and pleasure-seeking gardeners. Fiona, what beautiful, wonderful things have you brought us? Well, it's been a bumper year for RHS Libraries and Publishing because we've got three books out for you to choose from and they're all beautiful. So in terms of just sheer lovely pictures and, and loveliness, I'd say if you're into botanical art at all, or even if you're just into plants, our book on RHS, gold medal winning, winning botanical art, which has been written by our art curator, Charlotte Brooks, is really lovely. I must say, I'm looking forward to that. The um, botanical art at the RHS is fabulous. Yeah, and it's a shame that it's only gets shown, you know, once a year at the Botanical Art Show and not that many people can come to see it, whereas this book allows you to kind of look at the best of the best of the last 20 years. Do you have any idea how many botanical illustrations you've got squirreled away in the I library? have an exact idea. Oh, I well, you would. I apologise. Yes, they're all catalogued. Um, we've got 30,000 botanical artworks and they date back to the 1600s but we've for the last 20 years or so been buying contemporary botanical art and, and botanical art's going through a real, real uplift. Revival, yeah, yeah. yeah standards are just going up and yeah. up and this is a great chance for people to, to be able to experience it yep absolutely in the comfort of your own home so fiona where is the botanical art exhibition going to be held yeah if you want to see the artworks in the flesh it's um, going to be held in the lindley hall in april and all the details are on the rhs website and what other treasures have you extracted from the RHS library in Vincent Square? 
So we've got two other books out this year. We've got my book, The Hidden Horticulturists, which is looking at the story of the RHS's first trainee gardeners and their unsung heroes of horticulture. And then we've also got a biography of John Reeves, and that relates to one of the most beautiful parts of our collection, which are the Reeves Chinese paintings. John Reeves was a tea agent who sent paintings by Chinese artists back to the society in the early 1820s, and they opened the floodgates for... Chinese plants to come into our gardens are really important, but also just really beautiful paintings. He's a really fascinating man. It's a great story. Oh, thank you, Fiona. And James, what lovely things have you found? Lovely things, Guy. Well, one very lovely thing is a book by Christopher Bassac Gardner, the team behind The Floor of the Silk Road, which is The Floor of the Mediterranean. Now, I have a couple of issues with this book. <laughs> one, as somebody who's just worked on producing a floor, a floor of Cambridgeshire, it's not really a floor. It's a collection of images with some text about them. And it the occurs other, to me that some, there may be some listeners who don't know what a true flora well, really is. A true flora is an account of the plants of a given area. So it can be Europe, so there's flora Europea, or it can be quite local, so flora of Cambridgeshire, which is the one we've produced. And this, so you would think, was an account of all the plants in the Mediterranean, but it's not. As well, it's not just limited to the Mediterranean. It's got other Mediterranean climates in, like Chile and California and stuff. So with those two irritating caveats aside, <laughs> I do have to say... You're definitely selling this. Apart from that. <laughs> apart from these many fold, It is um, a stunningly beautiful book. It kind of has the same atmosphere as those David Attenborough extravaganzas from the world of animals. And, you, you know, it's this sort of staggering, overwhelming beauty of the natural world and it leaves you with the same kind of feeling of anxious longing that we don't just let all this go maybe really beautiful things are always delicate and fragile and you just sort of feel when you look at these images what in 50 years won't be there anymore and it's sort of the poignancy of beautiful things really so you haven't brought a copy along so just um it's explain is the beauty in illustrations or is it pictures? It's pictures. It's, Photograph. it's photographic yeah. imagery of landscapes with, with plants in them. You get a very sort of firm idea of plants as part of landscape, as, mm-hmm. as things existing in a place. And, it, you know, it's really a remarkable work for all that. I was just beastly about it a minute ago. <laughs> but the other thing that I think would be a fantastic thing to get in a stocking at just £20 is the new um, Hillier Manual of Trees and Shrubs, which, you know, possibly I shouldn't be pushing because it is had a hand in this well not really not so much as i used to i had a big hand in the last one but not so much this one but it is still an rhs publication and it's an incredible thing really over the years it's been worked on by many hands but everybody seems to have had this sort of magpie eye for the telling fact or the spot character or the charming anecdote and it's emerged out of necessity. If you tried to sit down and say, I'm going to invent a book as useful as the Hillier Manual, you couldn't do it. It's something that's arisen because people needed a quick ref for for trees and shrubs, and that's what's come out of it. And it's the wonder of the prosaic, really. It's this very plain language, useful things to know, and out of it comes this world of diversity and wonder and adventure. And it's like some dried-out facts but you can reconstitute it and it becomes this glowing world of incredible things all growing in our country. And I can't recommend it highly enough. There's endless adventures to be had in the Hillier Manual. I would agree with you entirely that I couldn't really do my job without the Hillier's Manual of Trees and Shrubs. But it has, it's fair to say that it's uh, got a great cast, but the storyline 
um, <laughs> isn't so much because there's not any pictures. There's, there. it's, there's, it's a quick reference to how many trees and shrubs are in there now? Almost 15,000 now. 15,000. So, are they all ones that will grow in Britain? Yeah, somewhere in Britain. I mean, some are pretty borderline. There's quite a lot of mm. Cornish things only, but you'll find them all somewhere. And it's the sort of book that should be written on as well. You can tick things off in the margin, <laughs> notes, yeah. ma- make your own little... Not library copies, obviously, because Fiona's looking at the little... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not recommending that. But, of course, it's so cheap as chips that you can have your own copy. Thank you, James. And Chris? I am really enjoying at the moment an updated version of Penelope Hophouse's book, The Story of Gardening. This is kind of one of those tomes that everybody should really have on their shelf. But actually, it's just 20 years old or so. And I'd forgotten how useful it is because it is chunked up into a lot of different chapters. But for me, it's the richness of texts, photographs and drawings. Um, Fiona was talking about botanical art, but actually illustrations, diagrams, they are so important when you're trying to understand a principle or understand why things happen. And this book does it absolutely beautifully. The reason why Penelope has updated it, she's now added a, a last chapter to it, and that's been written by a brilliant writer, Amber Edwards. And she's really looking about um, the future. So we've got all of the history, all of the reasons, all of the understandings, all the link to culture and to people and to religion that have created gardens and are a collective understanding of them. But it's the addition of this extra chapter which looks at contemporary design, show gardens, modernism, how that relates to the smaller domestic space. And they've added this chapter in and that's what's really brought it up to date. But it really is just one of those really beautiful books that you wish you'd written. And have you updated the illustrations of this book? Yeah, they've got new illustrations in them. them. But it's it's just for me, it's a blend of when you want a really simple one-dimensional drawing of some lines and or um, a repeated pattern and then the next page is a photograph and it's just Mm. that they're using illustrations in the right way to convey the right message. Chris, and you have more than one beautiful book, didn't you? Well, my colleagues are doing brilliant plugs for RHS Publishing, which is obviously much appreciated, but there is one book which I will be giving people vouchers to buy, and that's our book all about health and well-being, which I hope will be the seminal guide to prove why gardens and gardening are so important to you. It's been created by our... Director of Science, Alistair Griffiths and Mike Keatley, the garden designer and many others. And it really proves once and for all why gardens, gardening, being outside, listening to birdsong, street trees, everything. Uh, why this is good for people and why we need gardens and plants in our lives. And that comes out in February and is published by DK. Thank you, Chris. My beautiful book is called The Book of Seeds. And it contains pictures of 600 seeds. And you might think the book of seeds is perhaps not something of great beauty, but um, all these seeds have been photographed and not just photographed from some dried up collection. The authors, for I think they come from Botanic Garden Conservation International, have actually gone out and got the fresh seeds. So you can see all the, the fleshy protuberances, which um, I actually... I have to confess, some of them are quite surprising to me. I mean, the Christmas rose, for example, has got fleshy bits that appeal to ants. And then there's something called the rosary pea that is a hundred times more toxic than the, the ricin from castor oil beans. So it's full of fascinating facts as well as pictures of seeds. Now, a lot of seeds look a bit like peppercorns, but they've gone to some lengths to have all kinds of seeds, some ones that are smaller than a millimetre, which are rather challenging to photograph, to ones like coco de mer, which is the size of a medium pumpkin that is um, quite hard to fit into a book that claims to be a life-size guide to the seeds. But I think we have to draw a little bit of artistic license. But it's the kind of book that uh, you'd have on your shelves and dip into from time to time. So I think it's a, a great accomplishment. It's a beautifully made book with lovely production values. It would make a great gift for any plant-mad people of your acquaintance. 
That's all we have time for today. I'm Guy Barter, and you've been listening to the 2019 RHS Gardening Books podcast. You can find details of all the books discussed at rhs.org.uk forward slash books podcast. And you can buy many of them through the RHS's online shop. Until the next time, from me, Guy Barter and all the podcast team, goodbye and happy reading. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.